Episode 99 Saul's Kiss and February's Chilled Whisper Comfort by Stroll 60 degrees on Saturday Late winter in Patuxet Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxet General This week we enjoy a delicious apple, carrot and ginger smoothie While we listen to the finale of The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe but before we settle in for the solving of the crime, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These harbingers of early spring might be seen wearing tall black top hats with long black coats, quills, ink, parchment, and a specially sized cage that holds the wild groundhog that is the Patuxet General, without whom we would be stuck in the middle of winter forever. So thank you. If you would like to become one of these warmth-seeking folks, simply follow the links in the show notes or look for our page on patreon.com. As a small donation gets you extra content and exclusive merchandise only receivable through Patreon and means the world to us. So thank you. Let's make a smoothie. When my kids were little and their opa lived far away, he sent me a juicer to add vitamins to their diet. This is extra important if you have picky eaters in your house of any age. In fact, this is an excellent way to sneak in extra vegetables and bump up your fiber, folks. If you add protein and healthy fats, you'll get a more stick-to-your-rib sort of smoothie. My protein powder of choice is spirulina, as stated in episode 18. And check that out for everything you need to know about spirulina. Good fat choices include avocado, uh, with nut butters doing both jobs. I prefer peanut butter from Virginia and Spanish peanuts. They are a local nut company, and it's always freshly ground, so it's never hard, unlike other one-gredient peanut butters. But today's smoothie can be served two ways, just blended, which gives you all the pulpy fiber benefits, or you could pour it through a sieve and have a truly beautiful and tasty showstopper in a tall glass, garnished with an apple slice and a carrot curl. If you wanted a colorful and inflammation-reducing drink, you could add turmeric. It's a very yummy addition, and you will need either a powerful blender or juicer proper. But then, the sky is the limit with flavors. If you want to make this ahead, I suggest blending it at room temperature, then straining and refrigerating. This way it's not diluted. This recipe is for two, but you could multiply it by the pitcher. I would pour over fresh ice in a glass, but before we do that, for this smoothie, you will need two cups of water. If you want to blend with half still water and serve with half sparkling water, that would be lovely. Two carrots. Small thin carrots are best for blending, but throw in an extra one if they are tiny. Two large apples, cored and chopped into medium-sized pieces. One tablespoon honey, one tablespoon fresh lemon juice, one slice of ginger, and one slice of turmeric. I would use fresh turmeric if you can. Otherwise, you could use a half a teaspoon of powdered turmeric. Personally, I use the fresh root. It is sweeter and doesn't cloud up your drink as much as the other. 
Put all your ingredients into your high-powered blender and blend until smooth. Uh, like I said before, either drink this way or put through a sieve and chill to be served over ice or in a juice glass. Your body will love it as much as your taste buds. Have a glass and settle in for the finale of The Murders in the Rue Morgue. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. This week in our House on the Corner series, we bring you the conclusion of The Murders in the Room Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Dupont, I said, completely unnerved. This hair is most unusual. This is no human hair. I have not asserted that it is, said he. But before we decide this point, I wish you to glance at this little sketch I have traced upon this paper. It is a facsimile drawing of what has been described in one portion of the testimony as dark bruises and deep indentations of fingernails upon the throat of Madame L'Espagne and in another by Messieurs Domas and Etienne as a series of livid spots, evidently the impression of fingers." You will perceive, continued my friend, spreading out the paper upon the table before us, that this drawing gives the idea of a firm and fixed hold. There is no slipping apparent. Each finger has retained, possibly until the death of the victim, the fearful grasp by which it originally embedded himself. Attempt now to place all your fingers at the same time in the respective impressions as you see them. I made the attempt in vain. "'We are not giving this matter a fair trial,' he said. "'The paper is spread out on a plain surface, but the human throat is cylindrical. "'Here is a billet of wood, the circumference of which is that of about a throat. "'Wrap the drawing around it and try the experiment again.' "'I did so, but the difficulty was made even more obvious than before. "'This,' I said, "'is the mark of no human hand.' Mm, "'Read now,' replied Dupin, "'this passage from Cuvier. "'It was a minute anatomical and generally descriptive account "'of the large fulvous rang-o-tang of the East Indian Islands, "'the gigantic stature, the prodigious strength and activity, "'the wild ferocity, and the imitative propensities of these mammalia "'are sufficiently known well to all. "'I understood the full horrors of the murder at once.' The description of the digits, said I as I made an end of the reading, is in exact accordance with this drawing. I see that no animal but the orangutan of the species here mentioned could have impressed the indentations as you have traced them. This tuft of tawny hair, too, is identical in character with that of the beast of Cuvier, but I cannot possibly comprehend the particulars of this frightful mystery. Besides, there were two voices heard in contention, and one of them was unquestionably the voice of a Frenchman. 
true, and you will remember an expression attributed almost unanimously by the evidence to this voice, the expression, mon Dieu. This, under these circumstances, has been justly characterized by one of the witnesses, uh, Montani the confectioner, as an expression of remonstrance or expostulation. Upon these two words, therefore, I have mainly built my hopes for a full solution of the riddle. A Frenchman was cognizant of the murder. It is possible, indeed it is far more than probable, that he was innocent of all participation in the bloody transactions which took place. The orangutan may have escaped from him. He may have traced it to the chamber. But under the agitating circumstances which ensued, he could never have recaptured it. It is still at large... I will not pursue these guesses, for I have no right to call them more, since the shades of reflection upon which they are based are scarcely of sufficient depth to be approachable by my own intellect, and since I could not pretend to make them intelligible to the understanding of another. We will call them guesses, then, and speak of them as such. If the Frenchman in question is indeed, as I suppose, innocent of this atrocity, this advertisement which I have left last night upon our return home at the office of Le Monde, a paper devoted to the shipping interest and much sought by sailors, will bring him to our residence. He handed me a paper, and I read thus. Caught in the Bois de Boulogne, early in the morning of the day of the murder, a very large tawny orangutan of the Bornese species. The owner, who is ascertained to be a sailor, belonged to a Maltese vessel, may have the animal again upon identifying it satisfactorily and paying a few charges arising to its capture and keeping. Call at number 14, Rue Farberg Saint-Germain. How is it possible, I asked, that you should know a man to be a sailor and belonging to the Maltese vessel? I do not know it, said Dupin, and I am not sure of it. Here, however, is a small piece of ribbon, from which its form and its greasy appearance has evidently been used in tying the hair in one of those long queues of which sailors are so fond. Moreover, this knot is one of the few besides sailors can tie, and is peculiar to the Maltese. I picked the ribbon up at the foot of the lightning rod. It could not have belonged to either of the deceased. Now if, after all, I am wrong in my induction from this ribbon, that the Frenchman was a sailor belonging to a Maltese vessel, still I can have done no harm in saying what I have did in the advertisement. If I am in error, he will merely suppose that I have been misled by some circumstance into which he could not take the trouble to inquire. But, if I am right, a great point is gained. Cognizant, although innocent of the murder, the Frenchman would naturally hesitate about replying to the advertisement, about demanding the orangutan. He will reason thus. I am innocent, I am poor, my orangutan is of great value, to one in my circumstance a fortune of itself. Why should I lose it through idle apprehensions of danger? Here it is, within my grasp. It was found in the Bois de la Boulogne, at a vast distance from the scene of the butchery. How can it ever be suspected that the brute beast have ever done the deed? The police are at fault. 
They have failed to produce the slightest clue. Should they even trace the animal, it would be impossible to prove me cognizant of the murder or to implicate me guilt on account of the cognizance. Above all, I am known. The advertiser designates me as the possessor of the beast. I am not sure to what limit his knowledge may extend, but should I avoid claiming a property of so great a value, which it is known that I possess, I will render the animal at least liable to suspicion. It is not my policy to attract attention either to myself or to the beast. I will answer the advertisement, get the orangutan, and keep it close until this matter is blown over. At this moment, we heard a step upon the stairs. Be ready, said Dupin, with your pistols, but neither use them nor show them until at signal from myself. The front door of the house had been left open, and the visitor had entered without ringing and advanced several steps upon the staircase. Now, however, he seemed to hesitate. Presently, we heard him descending. Dupin was moving quickly to the door when we heard him coming up again. He did not turn back a second time, but stepped up with decision and rapped at the door of our chamber. Come in, said Dupin in a cheerful and hearty tone. A man entered. He was a sailor, evidently, a tall, stout, and muscular-looking person, with a certain daredevil expression of countenance, not altogether unprepossessing. His face, greatly sunburnt, was more than half hidden by whisker and mustachio. He had with him a huge oaken cudgel, but appeared to be otherwise unarmed. He bowed awkwardly and bade us good evening in French accents, which, although somewhat neufchatelish, was still sufficiently indicative of a Parisian origin. "'Sit down, my friend,' said Dupin. "'I suppose you have called about the orangutan. Upon my word, I must envy you a possession of him, a remarkably fine and no doubt a very valuable animal. How old do you suppose him to be?' The sailor drew a long breath, with the air of a man relieved of some intolerable burden, and then replied, in an assured tone, "'I have no way of telling, but he cannot be more than four or five years old. Have you got him here?' "'Oh, no, we have no conveniences for keeping him here. He is at a livery stable in the Rue du Bourg, uh, just by. You can get him in the morning. Of course, you are prepared to identify the property?' "'To be sure I am, sir.' "'I shall be sorry to part with him,' said Dupin. "'I didn't mean you should be at all this trouble for nothing, sir,' said the man. "'Couldn't expect it. I'm very willing to pay a reward for the finding of the animal. That is to say, anything in reason.' Well, replied my friend, that is all very fair, to be sure. Let me think, what should I have? Oh, I will tell you. My reward shall be this. You shall give me all the information in your power about these murders in the Rue Morgue. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. 
Dupin said these very last words in a low tone and very quietly. Just as quietly, too, he walked towards the door, locked it, and put the key in his pocket. He then drew a pistol from his bosom and placed it, with the least flurry, upon the table. The sailor's face flushed up as if it was struggling with suffocation. He struggled to his feet and grasped his cudgel. But the next moment he fell back into his seat, trembling violently, and with the countenance of death itself, he spoke not a word, and I pitied him from the bottom of my heart. "'My friend,' said Dupin, in a kind tone, "'you are alarming yourself unnecessarily. You are indeed. We mean you no harm whatsoever. I pledge you the honor of a gentleman and of a Frenchman that we intend you no injury.' "'I perfectly well know you are innocent of the atrocities in the Rue Morgue. "'It will not do, however, to deny that you are in some measure implicated in them. "'From what I have already said, you must know that I have the means of information about this matter, "'means of which you could never have dreamed. "'Now the thing stands thus. "'You have done nothing which you could have avoided, "'nothing, certainly, which renders you culpable. "'You were not even guilty of robbery.' When you could have robbed with impunity, you have nothing to conceal. You have no reason for concealment. On the other hand, you are bound by every principle of honor to confess all you know. An innocent man is now imprisoned, charged with the crime of which you can point out the perpetrator. So help me God, said he, after a brief pause. I will tell you all I know about this affair, but I do not expect you to believe one half of what I say. I would be a fool indeed if I did. Still, I am innocent, and I will make a clean breast if I die for it. What he stated was, in substance, this. He had lately made a voyage into the Indian archipelago. A party, of which he formed one, landed at Borneo, and passed into the interior on an excursion of pleasure. Himself and a companion had captured the orangutan. This companion dying, the animal fell into his own exclusive possession. After great trouble, occasioned by the intractable ferocity of his captive during the voyage home, he had at length succeeded in lodging its safety in his own residence in Paris, where not to attract towards himself the unpleasant curiosity of his neighbors, he had kept it carefully secluded until such time it should recover from a wound in its foot received from a splinter on board ship. His ultimate design was to sell it. Returning home from some sailor's frolic the night or rather the morning of the murder, he found the beast occupying his own bedroom, into which it had broken from a closet adjoining, where it had been, as was thought, securely confined. Razor in hand and fully lathered, it was sitting before a looking-glass, attempting the operation of shaving, in which it had no doubt previously watched its master through the keyhole of the closet. Terrified at the sight of so dangerous a weapon in the possession of an animal so ferocious and so well able to use it, the man for some moments was at a loss of what to do. He had been accustomed, however, to quiet the creature, even in the fiercest of moods, by the use of a whip, and to this he now resorted. Upon the sight of it, the orangutan sprang at once through the door of the chamber, down the stairs, and thence, through a window unfortunately open, into the street. 
The Frenchman followed in despair. The ape, razor still in hand, occasionally stopping to look back and gesticulate its pursuer until the latter had nearly come up with it. It then made off again. In this manner, the chase continued for a long time. The streets were profoundly quiet, and it was nearly three o'clock in the morning. In passing down an alley in the rear of the Rue Morgue, the fugitive's attention was arrested by a light gleaming from the open window of the Madame L'Espagne's chamber in the fourth story of her house. Rushing to the building, it perceived the lightning rod clamoring up with inconceivable agility, grasped the shutter, which was fully thrown back against the wall, and by its means swung itself directly upon the headboard of the bed. The whole feat did not occupy a minute. The shutter was kicked open again by the orangutan as it entered the room. The sailor, in the meantime, was both rejoiced and perplexed. He had a strong hopes of now recapturing the brute, as it had scarcely escaped the trap into which it had now ventured, except by the rod, where it might be intercepted as it came down. On the other hand, there was so much cause for anxiety as to what it might do in the house. This latter reflection urged the man still to follow the fugitive. The lightning rod is ascended without difficulty, especially by a sailor, but when he arrived as high as the window, which lay far to his left, his career was stopped. The most he could accomplish was to reach over so as to obtain a glimpse of the interior of the room. At this glimpse, he nearly fell from his hold through an excess of horror. Now it was that those hideous shrieks arose upon the night which had started from slumber the inmates of the Rue Morgue. Madame L'Espagne and her daughter, habited in their nightclothes, had apparently been occupied in arranging some papers in the iron chest already mentioned, which had been wheeled into the middle of the room. It was open, and its contents lay beside it on the floor. The victims must have been sitting with their backs toward the window, and from the time elapsing between the ingress of the beast and the screams, it seemed probable that it was not immediately perceived. The flapping to of the shutter would naturally have been attributed to the wind. As the sailor looked in, the gigantic animal had seized Madame L'Espagne by the hair, which was loose as she had been combing it, and was flourishing the razor about her face in imitation of the motions of a barber. The daughter lay prostrate and motionless. She had swooned. The screams and struggles of the old lady, during which the hair was torn from her head, had the effect of changing the probably pacific purposes of the orangutan to those of wrath. With one determined sweep of his muscular arm, it nearly severed her head from her body. The sight of blood inflamed its anger into frenzy. Gnashing its teeth and flashing fire from its eyes, it flew upon the body of the girl and embedded its fearful talons into her throat, retaining its grasp until she expired. Its wandering and wild glasses fell at this moment upon the head of the bed, over which the face of its master, rigid with horror, was just discernible. The fury of the beast, who no doubt bore still in mind the dreaded whip, was instantly converted into fear. Conscious of having deserved punishment, it seemed desirous of concealing its bloody deeds, and skipped about the chamber in an agony of nervous agitation, throwing down and breaking the furniture as it moved, and dragging the bed from the bedstead. 
In conclusion, it seized first the corpse of the daughter and thrust it up the chimney as it was found, and then that of the old lady, which it immediately hurled through the window headlong. As the ape approached the casement with its mutilated burden, the sailor shrank against to the rod, and rather gliding than clamoring down it, hurried at once home, dreading the consequences of the butchery and gladly abandoning, in his terror, all solicitude about the fate of the orangutan. The words heard by the party upon the staircase were the Frenchman's exclamations of horror and affright, commingled with the fiendish jabberings of the brute. I have scarcely anything to add. The orangutan must have escaped from the chamber by the rod just before the break of the door, must have closed the window just as it passed through it. It was subsequently caught by the owner itself, who obtained for it a very large sum at the Jardin de Plante. Ladon was instantly released upon our narration of the circumstances, with some comments from Dupin at the bureau of the prefect of police. This functionary, however well disposed to my friend, did not altogether conceal his chagrin at the turn which affairs had taken, and was fain to indulge in a sarcasm or two about the propriety of every person minding his own business. Let him talk, said Dupin who had not thought it necessary to reply. Let him discourse. It will not ease his conscience. I am satisfied with having defeated him in his own castle. Nevertheless, that he failed in the solution of this mystery is by no means that matter for wonder which he supposes it. For in truth, our friend the prefect is somewhat too cunning to be profound. In his wisdom there is no stamen, it's all head and no body, like the pictures of the goddess Laverna, or, at best, all head and shoulders like a codfish. But he's a good creature, after all. I like him especially for one masterstroke of Kant, by which he has attained his reputation for ingenuity. I mean by the way he has to deny what is to explain what is not. Thank you once again for joining us today at the Patuxent General. If you would like to reach out with a question, comment, or local ghost story, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Please reach out to us. We can't wait to hear from you, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. But until then, we'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent. <laughs>